0: Welcome to the Talking Writing Podcast. I'm John Vogel, TW's art director. In this episode, founder and publisher Martha Nichols speaks with playwright and author David Santos Donaldson. David's debut novel, Greenland, was published by Amistad Press, an imprint of HarperCollins in 2022. It met with critical acclaim from a wide array of voices, such as television and movie producer Howard Rosenman, whose works include Call Me By Your Name and The Celluloid Closet. The novel has been praised for its thematic elements of identity and sexuality, and for its use of literary allusions. In their wide-ranging conversation, Martha and David talked this past February about Greenland, which has just been released in paperback.
1: I'm pleased to have writer David Santos Donaldson with me today. We're meeting on Zoom. David is in Brooklyn. I'm in the Boston area. And it happens to be Valentine's Day, February 14th, which is a good match for this year's theme at Talking Writing, relationships. How Mm -hmm. the people we're closest to can inspire us but also hinder us as creative artists. Now that's not exactly a straightforward segue to David's novel, Greenland, but I would like to preface this by saying that I fell in love with Greenland when I first read it a few months ago. And that led me to get in touch with David about doing this interview. So, and here we are. So let me begin by introducing you, David, and then we can dive into talking. Okay. So David Santos Donaldson was raised in Nassau, Bahamas, and has lived in India, Spain, and the United States. He attended Wesleyan University and the drama division of the Juilliard School, and his plays have been commissioned by the Public Theater. He was a finalist for the Urban Stages Emerging Playwright Award, and his writing has appeared in various magazines, including Poets and Writers, Literary Hub, Electric Literature, and The Rumpus. He divides his time between Brooklyn, New York, and Sevilla, Spain. His debut novel, Greenland, was shortlisted for the 2023 Andrew Carnegie Medal for Excellence in Fiction. So David, welcome, and, and thank you so much for talking with me. I thank you,
2: Martha. Me. So thank you so much for inviting me.
1: To- <laughs> no, I, I'm delighted to have you here. Uh, I'm going to start by asking you to describe
2: the novel. If I had to give a basic idea of what the novel is about, novel uh, starts with the well, world is with the narrator, who is Kip Starling, and Kip Starling is a black Caribbean British queer aspiring writer who has moved from London to Brooklyn. He wants to be in New York, where is the home of his hero James Baldwin, and and he has written a novel, a historical novel about a uh, great British writer E.M. Foster's first real life secret love affair with Muhammad Al-Adel, who was a black Egyptian tram conductor who E.M. Foster, who's known as Morgan, met uh, during World War I when he was volunteering for the Red Cross there. So Kip Starling has written a novel about this real life love affair, but he hasn't been able to sell the novel. And finally, after a year of he and his agent trying to get someone to publish it, one of the biggest legendary editors uh, that exists says that she's interested with two big caveats. One is that he rewrite the entire novel from Muhammad's point of view before he had written it from Morgan, who was E.M. Foster's point of view. And the other caveat is that he'd do it in three weeks because her publishing house is being brought out by a big conglomerate in a month. And so she'll need to read the book at least a week. So he has three weeks to write the book from Muhammad's point of view, completely rewrite it. And Kip is desperate to be published, a published author. This is his dream and it's sort of his obsession. And so he doesn't back down from this challenge and he goes about it in a quite manic and crazy way. He locks himself in the basement and decides he's going to not come out until he finishes. He's got a supply of of coffee and crackers and water, and that's all he's got, and he's gonna do it. Um, But as he delves into the process of telling Muhammad's story, he starts to, it opens up, my editor came up with this phrase, and I think it's great. He opens up a Proustian portal to his own life, He and Muhammad have so much in common. They're both queer, Black, young men who are negotiating their relationships with colonialism and with older white men and with whiteness in general. Uh, And soon the lines between Kip and Muhammad starts to merge to the point that Muhammad begins to possess Kip. And from there, strange things start to happen. And eventually, somehow we end up in Greenland, where... Kip, at Muhammad's urging, has gone to find the wilderness, to find his true voice. And stranger things still happen in Greenland.
1: Well, and I would add to confront the great whiteness with a capital
2: W. Oh, that's, that, that's <laughs> exactly great. I mean, that's to your point. That was, you know, some people ask, not knowing much about the novel and having read it. said, so Greenland, what does that have to do with... Uh, you e. Foster or Blackness or anything. And it's in a way, it's sort of a metaphor in a way too, because like you just said, Greenland is a land of whiteness, mostly. Well,
1: yes. And one thing about this novel is that there are, there's a sort of incredible layering of um, literary influences and um, voices and echoes and uh, including, you, you mentioned, started out, I mean, obviously Forster, but um, but also uh, James Baldwin, Ralph Ellison being locked down in that basement. Yep, and
2: uh, <laughs> Ellison, exactly.
1: Um, you know, but there are also other things like August Wilson, T- Tony Morrison, uh, Chekhov with a gun. You know, I mean, there's a many, 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 many references and some of them are uh, directly referenced in the text. Yeah, And I do think that there are some, as you might talk about this in a little bit, some autofictional kinds of um Aspects to this story, too, and the way you kind of there's the channeling of Muhammad's voice, there's also the channeling of Kip's voice, right? But, um, I thought we should start. We're going to have you do a, a few readings, mm, sure, um, from the book. Um, and I thought maybe it would be good to start with um, one that is Kip and sort of towards the beginning. Um, it's the one that starts on page 72. Sure, um. And why don't you just read that whole section, starting with, I have to admit, Ben is right. And Ben is Kip's white lover, right? right? They're living yeah. in this house together, but uh, Kip's yeah. down in the basement,
2: yeah. It's Ben's house, they're living in Fort Queen, yes. Yeah. I have to admit, Ben is right. I've been obsessed with the idea of being recognized by the publishing world. For me, it's been larger than romantic or friendly love this monstrous need of mine. The reason I'm so fixated on getting published is that the giants of the publishing world are to me, the gatekeepers who say whether or not I matter to the entire world. And for me, some surely problematic reason, as a black gay man, I need the world to say, I see you, you matter, I know you exist. Several years ago, Ben told me about a famous experiment conducted in the 1970s by the developmental psychologist, Edward Tronick. It was called the still face experiment. Tronick filmed hundreds of pairs of mothers holding their infants. He then instructed the mothers to suddenly stop responding to the child. No reciprocating smiles, no frowns of concern, no widening of the eyes the babies were to get no indication at all that they were being seen by their caregiver. To the infants, it must have seemed as if their mothers suddenly ceased to exist. After three minutes of trying various tactics to get the mothers to respond, smiling, crying, kicking, giggling, pouting, every single child lost its shit. Complete meltdowns from every child in the experiment. Nothing could distract or console the child from the pain of the mother's still face. If we are not recognized by those who we need, we lose our shit. As adults, we don't show it like babies do. We've developed strategies, just as many of the babies in the Tronic study eventually did, to disguise or bury our unbearable pain. But even as grownups, we are no different. The pain of not being seen is still unbearable. We need to know we exist, that we matter. And the fact that the publishing giants are, by and large, mostly white, also means I'm stuck with waiting for white approval. Oh God, admitting that feels repulsive. But I have to confess, as pathetic, painful, and lame as it is, this is a sad state of affairs I haven't yet resolved. It's humiliating to bear my faults so blatantly to you. But Kip Starling's motto remains the same seek only truth, no matter how ugly and shitty it is. In an odd way, this is what Muhammad is teaching me, too, to understand the paradox of holding on to one's truth alongside necessary lies, treading the delicate balance. Tell all the truth, but tell it slant, says Emily Dickinson. Muhammad never betrays his own truth, but he knew when to lay it slant, when to tell it slant and when to lay it out bare.
1: Thanks. That's, I, again, it introduces so many of the themes that keep echoing through yeah. this, particularly Hip's insistence that he's telling the truth and trying yeah. to get to his true voice right. yeah, and trying yeah. to find his voice. Right. And, you know, right. my take on it is, is the more you say, I'm telling the truth, the more you're perhaps at least lying to yourself or at least not seeing everything that is, is in fact happening or going to happen. So why E.M. Forster? What got you interested in doing on re- research on him and on uh, his this secret relationship with Muhammad that um, scholars have recently, you know, has is, is, is gotten more publicity in the past few years. But what yeah. got you going?
2: Yeah. So, you know, Ian e. Foster is, is someone who I grew up, my mother was an English teacher, and I grew up seeing his books on the bookshelf. Um, and... I never really uh, felt particularly drawn to him because at that time he seemed like one of the old stodgy established uh, English voices. And I grew up in a British colony in the Bahamas. um, And I didn't, I wasn't really interested. I mean, he was put up there with Conrad and some other uh, British folks from a period that I wasn't particularly drawn to. Um, And so it wasn't until I was in college when, I realized um, and he didn't come out well he wasn't didn't actually come out in his entire life as being gay. so when he died in seventy uh, after that it was started coming out with his posthumous novel Morris uh, but um when I found out in college that this writer was gay and it was sort of the same time that I was sort of realizing that I was gay, I said, oh this 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 old book that was sitting there uh was by this gay man all the time secretly secretly sitting up there being like (laughs) me in some way so then i started reading a little bit of foster and i fell in love with his voice his sort of very casual uh seeming voice but also he's very slyly deep in a way that, that it doesn't that creeps up on you and so i fell in love with his voice but i also felt a little guilty for falling in love with him because at that time he was not really cool uh, <laughs> and in vogue. And, you know, and it was much more, you know, I was, there were other writers who I did also loved that were cooler. Like, you know, I was reading Toni Morrison, of course, and, and uh, Rushdie and all these people. And I was like, you know, people of colour who were also uh, great writers. So I felt secretly uh, like I was betraying uh, some sort of, uh, my identity to be Loving Foster. And then I found out that his first love was a black young black man, and that really blew my mind, because here's this like epitome of the middle class staunch Britishness. First, he's gay, which is a little bit okay, interesting. That's different, but the, but you know, but a lot of them were you know, um, two other people too, like Oscar Wilde, but this was particularly interesting that he was his first and seemingly most important to him romantic relationship was with a young black man uh, and I just became so curious about how that relationship worked because it 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 did like my character, Kip. It did seem to parallel some of the situations I was finding myself in in dealing with with white people romantically, uh and dealing with colonization and all the all the issues that uh were there in that relationship, I think that that uh, I dealt with in my life too. But I didn't, I don't like, even though people have brought up, and you brought up this word, auto-fiction, and auto, I, I, I don't feel comfortable, I know it might sound strange, but I don't feel comfortable writing about myself, really. Mm-hmm. In fact, not only comfortable, I feel bored writing about myself. So the idea of making it about Muhammad and and Ian e. Foster was an easier way for me to sort of explore these issues and a more interesting way for me.
0: now back to our interview with david santos donaldson author of greenland
2: you know meta is a word used for this novel but appropriately so i I think because (laughs) you know i started out part of kip's story started out starts out as my story so i did write a novel about e.m foster and muhammad initially that that did get chopped around and didn't get picked up and i met with a a great editor named Jonathan Galassi, who, who runs Farrah uh, Josh, and Giroux, and, and he was interested in the novel, but he suggested it might be more interesting from Muhammad's point of view. So I went back to try to write that version for the great editor, um, and I didn't, I, my heart wasn't in it. I, I had already researched for years and written this material and been over E.M. Foster and Muhammad the you know early 1900s and I was so sick of the whole period. I was tired of being in that world, and so uh, part of my frustration came out in the voice. Uh, another voice while I was trying to write the Muhammad and Muhammad novel, I would just like rant on the page myself before I started writing, and that voice turned out to be Kip. And, and then that got more, I said, oh, this this makes me feel more alive. I can see, I can have this character trying to write Muhammad's story. And then I could have him throw in all kinds of things, his poetry, sort of his his ideas of essays of what he thinks about things. You know, I, I, so I initially, so at that point, I decided it's going to be, I'm not going to write the novel that Jonathan Galassi probably wants, but I'm <laughs> going to write this crazy thing that excites me to do it and because i knew it was crazy and not a conventional novel i said you know i do actually want to get published so i don't think this is going to get published so i'm just going to give myself like nine months to write this and then done so i can get on to write something that's actually going to get published (laughs) so i was surprised when my agent said i love it because i thought he was going to say what is this mess it's all kinds of things the one of the things that Kip keeps struggling with in the in the
1: novel is who am I? What's my true self? All this. And frankly, we're all a lot of different selves. Exactly. Right. Right. <laughs> right. And uh, you know, in different situations, I mean, there's the obvious code switching, especially if you're a person of color or you're a well, woman in certain situations, you exactly. know, you're Absolutely. switching all the time, depending yeah. on who you're with and what the power dynamic is.
2: Also, I think something that often gets overlooked when people talk about this novel to me, it's obvious where my personal parallels with Kip. But the truth is, uh, I am every character in this book. So I am Concha, and I am Ben. I am I am the white I'm the white characters too. All of the experiences that the white characters speak of and the, and their points of view are also sides of me. So uh, it's all they're all in the parts of me that are in dialogue with the other parts of me.
1: Exactly. And yeah. I was going to say something else when I said, this might be a good time, but I actually think this might be a good time to say that you are a practicing psychotherapist yeah, <laughs> as well as a writer. Yeah. And that um, I think in many ways, that's a, a therapist view of things, but I think most people that write novels would say that too. Yeah. Yeah. Spe- you know, that the characters are all aspects of themselves. And it's, so of course, Kip's lover Ben is a therapist. Right, right. Right. <laughs> right? So um, so yeah, all of these are parts of of uh of of you know whatever whatever we think of as self or selves, right. you know. And so I, I think the novel is a is a wonderful way to kind of work through this. And it is interesting that you chose. Um, Two, I mean, you've got you've got Kip as a first-person narrator, but you also have Muhammad. Yeah. And so, uh, what I wanted you to do was read um, another one of these shorter excerpts mm-hmm. um, that is uh, written. It's Kip writing from Muhammad's point of view. Yeah. So
2: this, this is a, a later point in the relationship between. This is from Muhammad's point of view at a later point in the relationship between Muhammad and E.M. Foster Morgan. Uh, And it's a point in their relationship where they're having a a difficult moment, and Muhammad has some uh, new insights. And they're staying at a hotel, uh, sitting on the veranda, uh, the balcony of a hotel in the Sahara. The evening was still as death, not a breath, not a breeze, not a sound from below reached us up on the balcony, The wicker chair finally creaked as Morgan slumped. He sighed heavily. Oh dear, what muddles we make. Yes, I said, what muddles. Morgan sighed again. He wiped tears from his cheeks with his palms and said, "Ah, what a beautiful view. Yes, I said, you always find rooms with the best views, Morgan, always looking on. Morgan turned to me, injured it seemed, and asked what I meant. I got up. I couldn't even stand him looking at me. I couldn't stand feeling unseen while his clear eyes still perused me. I didn't trust that gaze anymore. I realized something for the first time. It was I who had seen myself when I thought he had seen me. What muddles we make indeed. There was a great irony. I had needed Morgan in order to see myself. But that doesn't mean he truly saw me, I realized. It was sort of a trick of sorts. I only imagined when he looked at me that I myself seemed to be good. I saw myself through his eyes, and yet they were not his eyes at all. They were my eyes. I had only placed them in him. And yet the goodness I saw in myself was true. I was capable of giving love being loved, that was real. Is all of life only a trick, an illusion like this? Are we all walking through a hall of mirrors, reacting to our own reflections as if they were our enemies, our teachers, our lovers? Could we all be living in our own fictions?
1: Thank you. I think that it's just beautiful. And it, is, it really does indicate um, this layering. Of voices, because mm. I really do think Muhammad comes to life on the page. Uh, you know that he's given, he's given the agency and the humanity that most likely he didn't, certainly didn't get from whites or you know the colonial British right. or anybody right. else at that time, and um, and secretly perhaps from Morgan, who, who's um, Forster,
2: right. But even um, Forster, I think, didn't sometimes didn't fully get him. Mm-hmm. I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure not.
1: Um, I mean, and that brings me to, uh, you know, one of the b- big, big themes in Greenland is the impact of colonialism. Mm. Um, and it's in everything from Kip's name, i Kipling. Kipling, um, right? <laughs> right. Um, and at one point you even refer to Graham Greene and Greenland, yes. his own, yes. you know, as literary critics have called it Greenland, you know, exactly. his particular world of politics and spies and power dynamics and the oppressed and the oppressors. Yes. Exactly. Um, so um more than anything I felt that this novel got across how somebody can be colonized internally by those in power mm. um taken over by voices that uh, don't feel like their own um but are still kind of take over. I mean can you say more about that or does that resonate with you?
2: Oh gosh that's such a great great question Martha and I you know as you said it Dread was rising in me about how to respond to this because it's such a huge, it's it's a great question. Uh, <laughs> keep just keep talking. It's okay. <laughs> and I, feel, and I feel like you know my response to that is this whole novel, uh, and anything less is going to not really capture all of 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 what it is. But I think I think you're right. So what could I say about it? So you know, Franz Fanon, uh, the the black uh, psychiatrist. Uh, who's you written white face, black, ma- wait, black face, white mass. What is it? Yeah. It was And uh, the wretched of the earth. Um, he has a phrase called uh, the, you know, internalizing the oppressor, you know, and I think that's a phenomenon that happens to a lot of. uh no, I shouldn't say a lot of, I think maybe across the board, it happens to colonized people and, um, in general, because we're indoctrinated, poisoned by, by this, by this stuff that it's an entire mentality of what, of whiteness, which Mm is sort of a default, unconscious default preference for Eurocentric values and characteristics. Um, And it's really hard to escape that. Um, Even, you know, I, and it doesn't, one can have pr- a lot of uh, self-respect um, and hopefully uh, nurture that, but it's still in the air, this, in uh, the oxygen we breathe, this, this sort of, this whiteness. And it often goes, goes un- unnoticed, that it's just sort of like the air. We don't even notice it, but it's, it's what we're breathing. Um, I saw a play a few years ago, um, a play I, I loved called *Fairview*, uh, and by Jackie Sibley uh, Struy. And there was a part in the end of the play where she has all of the all of the white people in the audience come up on stage, and then all the people of color stay in the audience. Um, and she she has. Um, the people of the color look up at the stage and try to imagine what would our story be if these people were not, didn't exist, you know? And so many of the stories for for Black people, I can say for sure, but many of people who are colonized, is like, you know, well, you have to work twice as hard to be better than, okay? That's a story, but that story wouldn't be there. Uh, without, if there wasn't whiteness at all, like, uh, so so what stories do, could we tell ourselves about who we are without whiteness at all? And it's, it was a devastating moment. I actually started crying because it's so hard to imagine how we could find our sense of humanity without responding to this whiteness.
0: And now back to our interview with David Santos Donaldson, author of Greenland.
1: You know, there are a lot of limitations to sort of, you know, the sort of, you know, white Western spiritual narrative or whatever you want to call that. And I think you bring in ghosts and, and yeah. you know, the sort of tradition that is different. I think that, you know, it's transgressive to like have, have the, the living and the dead crossing those boundaries um and to be moving back and forth much more easily than a sort of white western point of view right. might have it and so i was wondering do you believe in ghosts or do you believe in spirits
2: yeah you know it's 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 interesting this the whole genre like magical realism and and it's and it's often used for and I think initially I don't know the history that well, but it seems like with from writers of color, right? It's from the African writers and the South American writers, and Garcia Marquez and and uh, and all the African writers. And I think that's you know, in a way, it's almost a misnomer because it's it's uh, for a lot of people from the African diaspora, at least, there is magical is realism. It's not. It's, it is our reality. So there's the the, the traditions of candomblé and voodoo and uh, uh, santería, all that stuff. And I grew up in a place where people do reference. You know, you hear people talking about like, oh, that's you know, that's the spirit that did that, or you know, the, that's your grandmother who came back and did this over there, who's your dead grandmother came into. You, it's not unusual. To hear these kinds of things so it's not like a big stretch uh for me going going to that magical real place because it's just it's for a lot of people it's reality it's it's their way of of, of viewing reality and we know there's no objective reality right we all it's how it's the, the details you choose to use and how what you focus on what you know your own experience so it is the reality for a lot of people and, and do i believe in ghosts i don't I don't know if I I don't know I, I I think what I know is that even in writing this this book I had I had a very strong sense of the presence and connection of E.M. Foster and Muhammad I felt I felt them with me somehow mm-hmm. um and and you know uh and I, I don't know how to explain that and whether I'm insane or if I'm just like living in some fantasy world, but there was some, so I, feel, I, I do believe in, uh, I do believe, I guess, in ghosts in a certain sense that spirits, and, I, and also I know you talked, you mentioned that I was a psychotherapist. You don't even have to get woo-woo and, and all that woo-woo about it, but there's, there's very clearly things like inter- intergenerational trauma that's passed down even when it's never talked about. You know I, I know of a, a, a therapist, um, Her name is Ruella Frank, and she's a wonderful therapist who does a lot of body work and she works with people who have and she, uh, she's able to work with someone who's been a Holocaust survivor. And she knows within five minutes of working with that person, just from looking at them and their gestures, that they are descended from Holocaust. Uh, they are descendants of Holocaust survivors. So there's something passed down from our ancestors from the past that lives in us. Uh and that that I'm sure of.
1: Yeah, I I I don't think that's a big stretch or particularly um new agey or any, you know, it, I I don't I I think that's not a a huge stretch in terms of um the you know huge amounts of trauma that we deal with, or the way that trauma gets triggered when new things happen, right? But I, I mean, I've also sort of thought that there's this, you know, that for writers and other creative people, we also have our own ancestors, our creative ancestors.
2: Yeah,
1: absolutely. So it does kind of feel like they're spirits, Actually, you know. Yes. I mean, you can make it literal by talking about a muse, right? But I, I don't even think you need to make it that literal. It's just, I think that all those things kind of live within us, which is another thing that I think comes out in this novel. It's partly a struggle to kind of like take all these different voices that, he, you know, some of which were, you know, are white voices that he trying to get past for Kip. But yeah. also I think there, there's also an owning of all those voices, voices too. And, and, and of what they give us. I mean, I feel that
2: very strongly. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. It was very intentional for me in this book to not write about things I didn't know. I only wrote about things that I did know. Mm, okay. Uh, and, and so I have experienced visitations from goddesses. You know, these are, it seems like some, I'm adding some magical woo woo thing, but I, you know, I'm a long-term meditator, I'd say, and I've I've experienced some pretty, inexplicable strange things happen and whether they're like you know who knows what's causing it the mind or what but it's my experience is nothing in this book that i have not had some experience with
1: well again that's why i feel like it it does feel so alive it's it's not like any of that doesn't ring true sometimes we discover what's true for ourselves in moving forward, whether it's in meditating and having various kinds of spiritual experiences that we can't describe or having, there's creative ecstasy too. I mean, you very, you know, there's, there's sort of creative and sexual ecstasy, the way they yes. come together. Yeah. I mean, again, Walt Whitman is very much kind of a patron saint of this book as well. And, um, and that kind of, uh, you know, or, or Moments of being like Virginia Woolf. I, to me, there are like so many things that are kind of like woven through this that have to do with hyper-reality, you know, when you're sort of, you're in yeah. a different place.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: And so true, not true. Well, who knows, you know? I mean, <laughs> because people believe different things and they have different experiences. It sounds like you've lived in a lot of different places. And and uh, I'm I, I'm wondering how what you think about the creative connection between specific places and internal landscapes, especially because of the way that Greenland is invoked here as yeah. it's almost internal place. I'm just, so I'm just wondering what you think about that or ideas you might have about that.
2: Well, I'm just gonna uh, sort of riff off of what you just asked because I, I don't even know the answer, but I, do, I know what it makes me think about. So it makes me think about as I was writing Greenland, Uh, I got to a point that I was stuck in the process. It was going pretty fast for me, but I, I was, and I was talking about it with my therapist in therapy because I am a therapist. It's, you know, it's good that I also see a therapist and I have a great one. So, uh, and I was saying I'm stuck with, 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 I have this character and he's in the basement um, and there's not much narratively I know I can do unless it's all like flashbacks or, you know, like I, you know, I'm like, I, but I need to move the, I need to move the story forward. So, and he, but he's stuck in this basement um, and he can't bust out unless it's, I, I didn't, couldn't figure out like what to do. And my, my therapist says, well, he's going to have to go to the wilderness because I, because I was telling him that my, that, 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 that he was like trying to go to the wilderness metaphorically. And then my therapist says, No, well, he's gonna to have to go to the wilderness. And no, he didn't say he. He said, You're gonna to have to go to the wilderness. <laughs> and I said, What do you mean, me or my character? He goes, I don't know, maybe both. <laughs> so I actually said, Oh my god, that's a that's probably true. Like I've got it. So I actually thought, do I have to go like like Thoreau and, and build a house in Walden <laughs> Pond and, and live in a hut somewhere? Like maybe that's what I have to do. Uh and eventually that didn't work out. It was during COVID and all everything upstate was extremely expensive and taken. And I decided happy up happy to stay in my apartment in Brooklyn. But uh but Kip got to go uh and he got went to Greenland. Um so sometimes we have to go to the wilderness, uh not only metaphorically, but 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 physically. I know for me. You know, I live in, in New York and, uh, as you mentioned, live different places. And I grew up mostly in the Bahamas, but also living in, in Spain for a while, in India, in London, uh, and, and in the United States too. So I grew up living in a lot of different places. And, you know, when when um, my father died a few years ago, uh, his home in the Bahamas was uh, sold. And so I didn't have a place there to live. And I'd never experienced being having only one home to live in, because that's not the way I grew up. I know some people, it sounds really extravagant to have lots of homes, but it wasn't, it isn't just that, it's, I had family in all these different places. So a sense of myself was in, in different locations. And so it's hard for me to conceive of myself as just being from one place. Uh, and, um, and so I'm a person, as I say in the, Nowarian, in the book, a Nowarian. Mm-hmm. So the idea of a of a of a location is to me a physical location. Actually, feels quite um, suffocating to me to identify with one place. The internal space is much more for me has become much more important about uh, yeah. you know, and so I don't I mean I feel like could. I hope it's true that if I could put me anywhere on the earth that I would still write the same maybe I don't know if it was the same way or not but I still I would still show up for my writing uh, in the way that I do now I hope but it took me a long time after writing Greenland I mean when I say a long time for me it's been a year and a half since I've been writing and that's a hard period for me when I'm not working on something because I'm, uh, writing is the way that I orient myself to life. Uh, mm-hmm. I feel alive and, and also I feel connected to the world when I'm writing. And I relate to, as soon as I'm writing a project, then I'm noticing everything that happens in the world and, and seeing how that it, it, it can be in my story and it impacts my story. And I feel that like when I don't have that, I, I, frankly, I feel a little depressed, uh, and I'm not quite alive. But then I don't want to write until I have something that feels urgent. So I was stuck for a while, and I've just now recently been ignited with something that feels uh, urgent enough for me to 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 hit the page honestly. Uh, but I don't want to say too many details.
1: I think that is actually a great place to kind of wind down our conversation. And then I'd like you to read... Um, what we discussed, uh, the section with um, Aguta. And Aguta is the Inuit woman who's yes. basically helping Kip get his camping gear
2: to, get- <laughs> to go out on the glacier, as I recall. also, also setting him straight where he thinks he's just out <laughs> to find his narrator's voice, but she's letting him know that you're trying to find much more than that. You need to find your own, your, something deeper. Right. Right.
1: And so um, that's that was the one the section, one the section I wanted to have you you read was starting with where she says Kipling, she says her hands cradling her coffee cup.
2: Okay. Kipling, she says, her hands cradling her coffee cup. Why exactly do you want to make this trek to the wilderness, eh? Why exactly am I doing this? Half woozy with the booze now, I hear myself prattle on barely intelligibly about the need to write a novel that is authentically me, to speak in a voice of my very own. I tell her I've reached the final chapter now and I need to be sure I've found the right voice. But if you're at the final chapter, you've already written most of the novel, eh? What voice have you been using all along? I'm struck dumb. My brain seems to freeze. I don't know what to say. I hadn't thought about that, but it seems obvious now that she's saying it. What voice have I been using all along? The question seems to crack through some kind of illusory screen upon which I've been projecting everything. I've lost my perspective on reality. What voice have I been using all along? I don't know. Who is this thinking and talking right now? Me, who is that? I don't know. It's as if the ground beneath me is quickly vanishing. I have the odd feeling that I'm suspended in air about to plunge into an abyss. I grip the cafe table to keep myself from actually falling. I I don't know, I say. David, thank you so much for talking. Martha, thank you so much. It's been yeah. a real honor to be able to talk to you, and I really appreciate your enthusiasm and your appreciation of the book. It feel, it means so much to me. You know how it is uh, being a writer, and you never know how it's going to resonate with people, and it's so uh, meaningful to me that it res- when it resonates with anyone.
0: Thank you for listening to the Talking Writing podcast. We're an independent literary site and nonprofit organization based in the Boston area, but with contributors from around the world. Since our founding in 2010, we've relied on donations to keep publishing and podcasting. To donate to TW, you can use the donate button on the RSS.com page of this podcast, or visit talkingwriting.com/donate. And of course, feel free to drop us a line at editor at talkingwriting.com.